This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. For the past several months, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus is concluding this sermon with, um, the Sermon on the Mount is about the character of the kingdom, the nature and the character of the kingdom. And Jesus is concluding with these metaphors that he's sharing with us this morning. Now, if you're a visitor, you have to know this. Other people have spent hours, months with me trying to figure out the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. If this is your first time here, you're going to get it in one shot. And then on top of that, you get to be a part of the picnic. So uh, very clever of you uh, and uh, very smart of you. Um, Verses 13 to 27, Jesus is talking about two types of people. It represents two ways in which we relate to God. And it's very, very important. We need to know this because both types of people say they're Christians. We have to discern between what is true and what is a false Christian because they're not all true. He begins with two gates, two roads, two gates leading to two roads, but one road leads to destruction. He goes into two prophets, two types of prophets. They both say they're sheep. But one of them is a ferocious wolf. They're not all trustworthy. Then he says there are two trees. They yield two types of fruit. But one of them is poisonous. And then disturbingly, he says lots of people say they're Christians. They call Jesus Lord. But they're not all truly Christians. And he concludes this whole dissertation, the Sermon on the Mount, with this parable about two houses He says, both types of houses look very similar, but one of them, when the storm comes, comes crashing down. Jesus is calling us to make distinctions. He makes distinctions. 
And, you know, we live in a culture where that's just very, very difficult. We don't like to do that. We live in an age of tolerance. We live in an age of acceptance. Yet Jesus is making a very radical and controversial and sobering series of statements here about what it means to be a genuine Christian. What does it mean to be a real Christian? Five metaphors. The first three are going to teach us what a fake Christian, what an inauthentic Christian is like. And the la- actually, all five of them are going to tell us that, but the last two are going to tell us what a real Christian is. And so we have to pay very careful attention today. First, uh, we're going to talk about, the, we're going to walk through the metaphors, and we're going to talk about what an inauthentic Christian is. And the first metaphor, he says, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, the small gate. He says, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. But small is the gate, many enter through it, small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. That's what he says. Enter through the small gate, the narrow road, very, very cramped, very, very tight, confined. Narrow is this way that leads to life. Your life is going to feel sometimes like it's constricted or restrained, lots of rules, but it leads to life. What is he saying? First of all, all roads lead somewhere. That's the very definition of a road. It goes somewhere. Every road has a destination. What Jesus is saying here is that everybody is on a road and it's heading to some spiritual place, some spiritual destination. Everybody's on a path with consequences in life. Your faith, your spiritual beliefs, your life decisions, your real commitments, they're all taking you somewhere. It means every life decision we make is critical. Every minute, you're moving in one direction or the other. Jesus says everybody's got faith commitments, and those commitments are taking you someplace. Now, we don't like to live life believing that. We really don't. <laughs> we, we really don't like to believe that. But let me tell you something. Here's, here's an example marriage. For those of you who are married, for those of you who are dating actively, for those of you who, are, who want to get married, empirically, nobody has ever seen love. Empirically. You can't study it. You can't really evaluate it. If you're trying to weigh out after seeing somebody for a little while whether or not that person is it, whether or not you should marry that person, uh, whether or not you should love that person, whether or not that person is a well-made match for you, Any evidence, any empirical standard or evidence is not going to help you. Not one bit. Trust me. I've tried. I got married very, very late in life. I tried. I wasted a lot of time. It's a matter of faith. You develop some sort of beliefs about that person, and you've got to act on those beliefs. You've got to act on what you know. That's what faith is. In fact, most things that give you any type of meaning in life, love, relationships, trust, it can't be proven through any science. There's no empirical evidence. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't use your mind or that there aren't any reasons for going this way or that way. It doesn't mean that you can't examine the authenticity of your commitments. What I'm saying here is you just can't prove anything before you make the commitment. Jesus says everybody, everybody in this room has faith commitments. No matter who you are, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, Everybody, therefore, is on a road. Everybody's basing their life. Everybody's basing their decisions tomorrow about some belief about God, about some belief about salvation, about judgment, about the afterlife. Everybody's on a road. Everybody's developed life strategies on the basis of their faith commitments. 
Even if you don't believe, then you've based your life commitments, your life decisions on that commitment. In other words, the road that you're on is taking you somewhere. And there's absolutely no neutrality. This isn't, you know, there's lots of roads and they all go up the mountain. They all end up in the same destination. The modern image of religions believe that, exactly that, that we're all uh, on different roads and they're all going a mountain, but we're all going to meet at the top. We're all heading in the same direction. We're all after God. We're all seeking God. We're all seeking salvation, right? Jesus counters this and he says, absolutely no. There are two roads. You're either on one road or the other road, and they go in absolutely opposite directions. There's no neutrality. Everybody's on one road or the other. You're either going further from the truth or you're going closer to the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, it's written in your word of encouragement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that makes Christianity the most exclusive faith system in world history. It's a remarkable claim. Is it intolerant? People say it's so intolerant. Think about this. How did Jesus deal with prostitutes? How did Jesus deal with tax collectors? They were the modern day, I guess the the ancient version of a drug dealer back then. That was their lifestyle. How did Jesus deal with them? Absolute acceptance, love, compassion, grace. Why did he do that? And he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you're going to love your enemies, you're going to love even friendly people who disagree with you. You're going to love them. His faith system guided and drove the way he responded to people socially. His social character was driven by his underlining theological character, his spiritual character. So are ours. The idea that all roads go to the same place, it's actually sillier than people who actually argue that their own way is right. You understand that? Think about this. Hitler, for example, he believed that he was on a divine mission. Nazism is actually based on very, very theological roots. If you ever want to have a conversation with me, I studied this in grad school. I'll I'll sit and we'll, we'll talk about it. Theological roots, deep philosophical roots, it impacted the outer character of the culture and it, and it was driven by this underlying inner spiritual root. The theology actually impacted culture. It impacted music. It impacted the arts. It impacted philosophy. All the way out, it emanated into their social character. Yes, composers and writers, they had inner Nazi roots. And yet, you know, people say, well, but you've got to study that to really know that, right? But do you really need to know? Do you really need to study that in depth to know that on the outside alone, Nazism is invalid. It's not a valid belief system. The world, by consensus, has already decided that Nazism is invalid. All the roads do not go to the top. You have to discern. Jesus is calling us to distinguish. Here's another example. People say, well, hey, don't try to convert people to your religion as if your religion is superior to other religions. Now, what they're really saying is this. I want, you, I want you to abandon your inferior belief system about faith and take my superior belief system about faith. You can't avoid it. You absolutely can't avoid it. You need discernment. Absolute tolerance is absolutely impossible. Jesus says no. In fact, your common sense is going to tell you that's not, that can't be the case. To say that you can't judge between religions 
is to judge between religions. To say that you can't determine the right and wrong belief system is a determination of right and wrong belief systems. Exactly the case. What's the broad road? The broad road is whatever comes natural. The broad road is whatever is instinctive. Caring for me. Survival of me. The flourishing and the thriving of me and my own. My view of God. What I define it to be. I define God. That's the broad road. That's the broad road. The narrow road of the kingdom is a very counterintuitive way of thinking. It's counter to your instincts. It's counter to, you take what's natural, most likely that's the broad road. Your natural response, that's the broad road. You got to do the opposite of that. That's, insti- that's not instinctive. It's counter instinctive. God defines me. Sometimes it's going to fight with you. Sometimes it's going to argue, argue with you. But think about it. A God that doesn't conflict with you. A God that doesn't argue with you. A, do- a God that doesn't counter you. A God that doesn't disagree with you. Can't be God. A God that always agrees with you. A God that always goes with you. That's a God that only you could have created. It can't be God in your life. Sometimes you're going to fight. Sometimes you're going to argue. Sometimes it's going to feel constraining. Sometimes it's going to be confusing. Sometimes you're going to wander from it. But eventually, you're going to submit to Christ. And that takes focus because it's so counter to your thinking. It takes focus. That's your mind. Sometimes it means, wow, I have to really shift the way I operate. A bending of your will, that's your strength. Sometimes you need to be moved. You need to be compelled, changed into it. That's your soul. That's your heart. Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. Your will. That's worship. Right now, it's diffuse. We're turning to everything else. It's going to take your mind. It's going to take your strength. It's going to take your heart. It's going to take your soul. You need to be moved. It's unnatural, supernatural. Then Jesus says there are two trees. He doesn't say one tree has fruit and it's beautiful and flourishing and the other tree is falling apart and withered and there's no fruit. Come on, that doesn't take any wisdom. It doesn't take any discernment. If you walk into an orchard, and there's a bunch of trees, and some of the trees have leaves, and some of the trees don't have leaves and no fruit. It takes no uh, wisdom. It doesn't take much to see that one of them is living and thriving and flourishing, and the other is falling apart and withering and dying. It doesn't take much to see that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, both by your fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. They both look like they're flourishing. They both have leaves. They both have fruit, but one of them is killing you as you eat of it. You don't even realize it. One of them's poisonous. Verses 16 and 18. By your fruit, by their fruit you will recognize them. A good tree cannot bear fruit. They're bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. What is he talking about? Two trees, they both bear fruit. Bad means poisonous, actually, in the actual text. Literal text. The bad fruit in the Greek is poisonous. So a good tree cannot bear poisonous fruit, and a poisonous tree cannot bear good fruit. The two trees look exactly alike, but one of them is poisonous. Now, then he goes on and he says, watch out for false prophets. 
They come in sheep's clothing, but inward they're ferocious wolves. That's what he says. They come in sheep's clothing. They're like sheep. He says they claim to be sheep. The term sheep in the New Testament goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's the same exact word, and it's synonymous with the people of God. Basically what Jesus is saying is, here are two types of people. They both want to teach you. They both want to educate you about the way, about how to get to God, about how to connect with God. And they're both telling you, here's how you do it. They're both saying that they are people of God. They're both saying that they're Christians. Can you believe that? That means that there are people in this room who say that they're Christians and they're telling you how to live a life that's connecting you with God. But one of them is a ferocious wolf. That's what he's saying. One of them is a ferocious wolf. These are prophets. These are teachers. They're not people who claim to be skeptics. They're not people who are atheists or agnostics or immoral people. These are good people in the church. On the outside, they look religious. They're moral because they're prophets. They're teachers. They're virtuous people. They obey the Ten Commandments. They pray. They go to church. They try to be good to people. They try to be kind. They appear to do God's will. But the New Testament says they are ferocious. Ferocious wolves. The word ferocious, ferocity, this particular word in the Greek is synonymous with the word extortion. It's synonymous with the word blackmail. So these people, let's put it all together, these false prophets, they read all the right books. They know all the good music. They know Christian culture. And they try to do good. They appear at the events. But why do they do these things? It's because inside, they're using these things as a way to validate themselves so that they can kind of find some sort of certainty about who they are. That's why they're good. They're extorting God, or they're trying to. They're trying to blackmail God. They're saying, this is what validates me, you see? you got to accept me. I have the qualities of submission, but I haven't submitted. I have the qualities of sheep, but I'm not sheep. Jesus says, why? Because we lack inside inner glory, this inner glory. And as a result, we have, we have this empty void that's been created by sin. A void that was intended for glory. We were created and made for glory. You know what glory is? Weight. Significance. That's why we so desperately want to feel significant in life. And so, that's why everything we do, inwardly we do it out of our emptiness. Because of sin. That sin has created this entirely big hole, this cosmic hole that only God can fill in our hearts. And as a result, we're trying to fill it. Even our pursuits, think about it. Why we try to be good artists. Why we need to be good singers. Why we need to have a great, decent career. Why we need desperately to have someone fall in love with us. You know why? Because everything's about you. Because we lack glory. The inner glory is gone. And as a result, everything we do is about that. We're we're trying to extort God, blackmail God into saying, you're acceptable. We want to feel acceptable. That's why we pray. You know, why do we pray? Why do we help people? For other people? No. We do it for us, for you. We lack this inner glory, and so we're like sheep. We've got qualities of submission, but we've never submitted. You put sheep out into the wild, they die. You put wolves out into the wild, they thrive. Wolves can never submit. Wolves can never surrender. They're always wild. And so here you have these people. They're always burdened. They're trying so hard. They want a faith 
that is outward. Why do they have this kind of faith? Because they want to feel greater. It's more superior than other people. And that's why they're always mocking other people. Bad people. People out there. I would never be this way. I'm not like those people. We don't, we don't, we want to believe that we are sheep. And so we're ferocious. Now, I used to think that these two roads, these two trees, these two prophets, I used to think that Jesus was talking about the difference between people who obey and people who disobey. People who are good and people who are bad. People who believe God, they're good, they obey. People who disobey God, people who are not good, they're bad. They, they don't believe in God. Think about this. <laughs> Why would Jesus summarize his entire three chapters of probably the most impactful teachings in his ministry on earth to tell you that you need to discern between people who are good, visibly good, and people who are visibly bad and disobey God. The Bible is nuanced, but the Bible is not dumb. The Bible is not stupid. Jesus is not unwise. He knows us. How much discernment do you need to tell the difference between someone who's praying and someone who doesn't pray? How much discernment do you need to know the difference between a person who goes to church and a person who doesn't go to church? Is that what he's talking about? Jesus is not talking about good people and bad people. Because he tells this parable. And it's the center part. You got two metaphors, parable, this parable, and then two more metaphors, right? That's basically what he's doing, right? Or, or sorry, the three, the three parables, they're all parables, but he goes into these three metaphors, and then he tells us this, this, these two parables to close, this parable in the middle. And he says this, and it's a scary, scary story. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read this part, actually. He says, Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? This is the scary part. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. Depart from me, you evildoers. That's harsh, right? Because these people are doing good things. Very, very harsh, right? Uh, very scary. And then he goes on and tells the parable. He concludes with this house that's built on a rock. And the storms come and it stands. But then there's this house that's built on sand. And it falls, it crashes, it comes down with a crash after the storm comes. What is he saying? These people who are praying to God, who are praying to Jesus, these two homes, they're On the outside, they look the same. On the outside, they look identical, but on underneath, two very, very different foundations. What's he saying? He's saying this, and this is the scary part. It is absolutely possible for people who look to Jesus and call him Lord, but then on the last day realize that Jesus never knew them. That's scary. Why is it shocking? It's shocking because of this, because it begins with the qualities. The qualities are shared. The qualities of a true Christian are similar to the qualities that these fake Christians share. Very, very important. What are these qualities? First, they knew the Word. They knew their Bible. They knew Scripture. 
They call Jesus Lord. That word Lord, kyrios, in Greek. In the Old Testament Bible, you had the word Yahweh. What is the word Yahweh? It's a very, very personal word for God. It's a word that only God's people would use who have a personal relationship with God. Jehovah, translated out of the Latin. It's a name God revealed to Moses. When Moses, he said, I want you to tell my people and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go in Exodus chapter 3. Moses says, well, when they ask me who it is that sent you, what do I say? And God says, I want you to tell them, I am sent you, Yahweh, I, your personal God. It's a word that only God's people would specific, who are specific to, the God, to God the Father would know. This word, translated in the Greek, is always the word kyrios. These Jews here, Greek-speaking Jews, are calling Jesus kyrios, Lord. They knew their Bible. That means they studied the Old Testament, and they knew Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They call him Lord. That's what they're saying. The second thing is they say, Lord, Lord. Now, if you've been here over the course of months, you would know, because I say it many times throughout the course of several sermons, that Whenever in Hebrew literature you see two words doubled up together like that, Lord, Lord, it means it emphasizes emotional content. So these people are not just saying, Lord, they're they're crying. They're emotional. They're weeping. They're singing. They're saying, Lord, Lord. You see this all throughout the Bible. David, in the conspiracy, realizes that it was his own son that was conspiring against him as king. And so they finally kill him. And he's kneeling over and he's holding his son. He's cradling his son. He says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son is dead. He's weeping. He's crying. The emotional doublet. In Psalm 51, David, after he commits his great sin of immorality with Bathsheba, he's crying out to God. He says, against you, you only, you, you, the doublet, the emotional content is there. Jesus looks at Martha who's been slaving away. And Martha's frustrated because what what she's saying is, look at me, look at what I'm doing. Jesus says, in his compassion, he's crying. He says, Martha, 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 Martha. To be emotional, this doublet emphasizes movement, emotional movement. These people were not just speaking out doctrinally. They were crying. So you have, they know their word. They feel God. But thirdly, they served. And oh, they served. They said, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? Jesus doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say, depart from me because you never did that. That's not what he says. He doesn't deny that. These people were teachers, They were prophets. They were healers. They performed many miracles. Here are people who are sound in Scripture, just just emotionally moved, serving faithfully, serving with their heart. And Jesus says, I never knew you. They had the qualities of people who submitted, qualities of sheep. Jesus says, I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. There's nothing wrong. You need to know your Bible, you need to know Scripture. That's why he's emphasizing that. These people need scripture. You need to know scripture. You need to, you need to, have, you need to serve. These people serve. He's not saying you can't serve. You need to serve. 
Because these people are praying. They're, they're emotive. You need to feel. You need to worship. You need to come in worshipfully with gratitude. You need to have emotional content. But he's saying, you know, and some people, um, they have combinations of each of those, sometimes at the exclusion of others, right? But these people weren't known by Jesus. That's what's scary. This is the part of the text that tells you what a genuine Christian really is. How do you discern that? How do you discern that? And here's the answer. Because it's all about who Jesus is and it's all about what he did. It's all about Jesus as Lord. It's all about Jesus as King. And it's all about his grace. First, who he is. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. These people, they're calling Jesus Lord. They know their word. They have the mind of a Christian. They have the soul of a Christian. Lord, Lord. They have the deeds, the hands, the feet of a Christian. They got great ministries. We all want that. They had gifts, but they didn't have God. They had gifts. They didn't know the giver. Because if you really have God in your life, you would give up your will. Jesus says, I I understand that you've done all these things, but what I wanted was you. I want your submission. I want your surrender. This is the difference between someone who's actually trying to use God by what they've done, by what they pray, by how they feel, and somebody who really loves God and serves God and is grateful to God. That's the difference. They say, I did everything in your name. I gave my life to you. One of my favorite movies, you know, as a child, well, as, a, as a teenager, and this is going to date me back in high school, you know, 1990, 1991, the movie Pretty Woman came out. Now, you know, if you've watched the movie, decades old, Pretty Woman. At the tail end of the movie, okay, good movie, cheesy movie, but good movie, okay, tail end of the movie, the main character, Richard Gere, Edward Lewis, is, is confronted by, he's confronting Philip Stuckey, his lawyer. And because she had basically, he had basically made an advance toward this woman uh, that he was in love with. And so he punches him. He punches him and breaks his nose. And they're, you know, his hand is hurting, his nose is broken. And he, and he says, oh my gosh, I can't be. And, and Philip Stuckey says to El, Edward Lewis, I gave my entire life for you. I gave everything I am. I gave my entire life for you. I gave decades to you. Ten years, he says. And Edward Lewis says, I'm not going to tell you everything he says, but he says, he says, it's not me. It's not me that you loved. It's the kill. I was just the means to the kill. It's the kill you loved. You're a lawyer. You want the kill. You want the victory. You want the win. That's what you loved. I'm just the means to get that. These people, they're saying, I did everything in your name. I gave you my life. Jesus says, that was just the means to get what you really wanted. I wanted you. That's what I wanted. These people, these people they say, you know, I want these things. I want all these things. I want to do all these things for that matter. But I don't want to be in a position where I can't decide for myself what do I do with my life, 
Or you go to another scene. Who and when can I sleep with whoever? Who and when I get to forgive? What to do with my money? I want to define that. I get to determine that. What are they saying? They want the benefits of Christianity, but not the commitment that comes with Christianity. They want the thrill of being in Christ, but not the responsibility of being in Christ. They want the joy of what it means to be a Christian, but they don't want the commitment of what it means to be a Christian. A real Christian surrenders his will. The mark of a Christian is this. It's not more knowledge. It's not more emotions. It's not more service. Those things will wear you out. Trust me, I've been there. Most of my life, I thought I was a Christian. I was a leader. I was in the church, very visible. And I realized that my life was empty and void of the one thing that was needed. That was God himself. That was most of my life. A real Christian surrenders. A real Christian, it gives us the notion that, that what they are, their gifts, you know, the gifts, the talents, the deeds, it makes us feel sufficient at times. But a Christian is humble. A Christian is teachable. Jesus begins the entire sermon with, blessed are the poor in spirit. A Christian is bankrupt in spirit. You know why? Because you gave up your spirit. You gave it up. You gave up the fight. You surrendered. You submiss- you, you've, you've become submissive. A real Christian knows how to take criticism. A real Christian understands the depth of repentance. How do you tell? How can you tell? That's how you tell. You know, a, a real Christian knows how to take responsibility for their sinfulness. A real Christian is not duplicitous. They say one thing to a leader, but another thing to somebody else in private. A real Christian is not duplicitous. There's integrity there. A real Christian is is not surprised by their sin. I can't believe I did that. Wow, I can't believe I did that. No, they're never surprised by that. They're never depressed by that because they know what they're capable of doing and they know their hearts are doing it all the time because they haven't submitted. And they know that what, what the Lord wants, what God wants is you. That's submission. A real Christian is not surprised by sin, is not depressed by sin. You know what that does? It makes you incredibly open-minded. You're open to everything. You're open to hearing all criticisms. You receive and accept it. You're going to process it. You've got to validate it. That's why you're friends. That's why you have Christian community. Am I really like that? But you'll be open when they say you are. And you won't be depressed when they say you are. And you won't be surprised when they say you are. And you'll say, wow, I really desire more of Christ. What he's done, you won't be ashamed by that. You won't be broken by that. It won't throw you into depression or guilt. Why? Because the Lord saves you. That's a Christian. You can't do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. One who does the will of the Father, that's somebody who says, I surrender my will. It means I want to grow as a child of the Father. I want to know his will. I want to do his will. I need people to show me how. Where has my character gone wrong? And why is it like that to the depths? What idol am I clinging to? Who am I seeking out as king? Who has become the Lord of my life? That's not the Lord. I want to submit to the Lord. Not everyone who says to me then, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom. Only he who does the will of my Father, who submits, who surrenders. Do you have that? 
Because that's the difference. This is a matter of life and death. When you surrender, when you're on the narrow path, which goes completely against your instincts, you're on a solid foundation of Christ. That's what he's saying. You thought you were pursuing more of something that would make you more of who you really are. And now you realize that that is actually the broad road. That is natural. That is your instinct. And so you follow this path and you realize it is the wrong Lord. And as a result, you need to shift. It is called repentance. That's the theological term. It's called repentance. But that's a surrender. You're on a narrow path now. It goes against your instincts. But he says that is solid ground. There's a passage in 1 Kings chapter 3, kind of disturbing passage. I had so many of these examples. I, I wanna, if I have time, I want to share both, uh, at least a couple. 1 Kings chapter 3, King Solomon, the king of Israel, is settling a dispute between two women. They both claim that this child is theirs. Clearly, this child cannot have two mothers. Well, maybe today they can have two mothers, but clearly in those days, you, a child cannot legally have two mothers, right? And so they come to the, Solomon. They say, which Mother, which is the true mother of the child? Because they both claim that they're theirs, that the child is theirs. Solomon says, here's the answer. Split the baby in half. Half will go to you, half will go to you. Split the baby in half. The first woman says, yes, do it. Kill the baby. That way, neither of us will have the baby. The other woman says, no. Save the baby. I'll give up the baby. I love this baby. I love it, so I give it up. This baby is my treasure, but I'll give it up. The first woman wants to give up the baby to save her motherhood, to prove that she is a mother. The second woman wants to save the baby, give up the baby, surrender the baby. To surrender the baby is to give up her life, ultimately so that the baby will have joy, so the baby will have a life. I'm going to surrender my joy my instincts for the baby's joy. And that way I know that in that way I am a real mother. You actually become a true mother. You actually gain the baby. You actually see the baby thrive. Solomon says you are the true mother, right? The one who gives up his baby, the one who gives up her joy to gain real joy. The other one says, no, my joy is to win. She says, no. I'll give up the baby. It's going to kill me. I'll give up the baby because that's my true joy. There's this other passage. Do I have time for this? I'm going to share the passage, okay? Samuel, the judge, goes to King Saul, the king of Israel, the first king of Israel. He says, God tells me, you've now routed the Amalekites, your enemies. I want you to kill everything there. I don't want you to leave a single thing alive. I want you to kill everything. I want to wipe out every cow. Anything that makes any noise, I want you to wipe it out. Saul walks in and realizes, oh, this stuff is pretty good. He's a steak eater because he saves some of the cows. Clearly, he's a steak eater. So he saves some of the best cows, some of the best cattle, some of the best livestock. Now Samuel comes in and says, what is this I hear? What are these animals I hear? Did you do what the Lord told you to do, which was to get rid of every living thing here, to wipe out all the livestock? And Saul says, no. Actually, what I did was, I thought it would be better to sacrifice the best of these things to God. And Samuel says, who 
told you this, right? That's not what the Lord says. To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, I don't know what you wanted, but the Lord wanted you. He wanted your submission. The last sign of a real Christian is that they grasp the grace of God. Two houses, they look the same. Comes right after, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things, right? So we're going to mold these together because that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. What are these houses made of? These houses are made of the three great qualities that every Christian has. They know the word. They pray. They're emotive. They feel. They experience. But also, they, they serve. They serve greatly. Good teaching, great knowledge, good worship, great emotions, good service, great ministry. Both men have knowledge. Both men worship. Both men have great efforts. That's what these houses represent. But the difference between the two is what's underlying, what you can't see. One bases the entire house on the foundation on the rock, Jesus Christ. The other on sand, his own foundation. So when the storm comes, there's nothing there. Sand, when the rain comes, gone. There's nothing there. The house tumbles and crashes because there's nothing, there's not much underneath. The Christian says, Father, my repentance sucks. I suck at repenting. I fight it. And even when I repent, it doesn't come out right. It sucks. My affection is empty most of the time. In fact, I think I do try to use you sometimes. My affection sucks. My love for you sucks. My obedience usually sucks. It stinks. I fail again and again and again and again and again. Why did Jesus die for me? Why did Jesus die for me? I didn't do anything to deserve it. Why did the Son die for me? Why did he live the life that I should have lived? And why did he die the death that I should have died? Why did he pay my penalty? Why did you welcome me? That's what it means to build your house on the rock. To admit that, to know that, to plant that deep inside. You understand that it had nothing to do with you. That's all by God's grace. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, I want, I've had all these things. I had great things. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection to be found in him. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul saying, until you realize that you've been saved by the grace of God alone, then and only then have you built your house on the rock. Luke chapter 18, two people, two, pray, two prayers. The Pharisees praying and the tax collectors praying. The Pharisee says, oh, look at me. I do all these things. The tax collector, the drug dealer, he can't even look up. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's resting on his mercy. And Jesus says, it's that man that goes home justified. The word justified, he goes home saved. It's that man. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every one of those words is important in that prayer. How can you say this? Look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who is Jesus? Who is this king? Who is this Lord that demands everything of who we are? He's the genuine son of God. The genuine, he's the real. This is the real thing. We're all wanting to be him. He is the real thing. But on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
No, the words God said, depart from me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have, might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what that means on the cross, God looked at Jesus, the most genuine Christian there could ever be, and he said, depart from me, away from me, you evildoer. He was rejected. He was cast down. He was excluded. Jesus knew the word. Do you know that on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was reciting Psalm 22. He knew the word. Jesus said, my God, my God. Emotional content. Emotional content. Did he not heal? Did he not cast out demons? Did he not prophesy in God's name? Did he not do that? He served. And his greatest act, his, the ultimate act of service was what he did on the cross. These people, they performed miracles. Jesus said, it is finished. I did it. I performed. Jesus is weeping on the cross. He's on the only, the narrowest path a man could walk up to Calvary on our behalf. He's the opposite of a wolf. He's the opposite of wolf. He's the true sheep. So true, so perfect, so genuine. He's the perfect lamb that was slain. His fruit was good. The Bible calls him the first fruit of the living. The first fruit. He will be the first of the many that will come. They say, did we not do all these things in Jesus' name, in your name? He said, it is finished. And yet, even though he had access to God, even though he was one with God, God said, I did not know you. Depart from me. He was forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus was excluded so that we could be included. Jesus became unknown so that we could be known, so that we could be personal with God, so that we could do business with God. That was his work. Jesus gave up his kingship to become the greatest king. You know why we love him? Because he's king. That's why we worship him. We're called to. But do you know why you love him? Because he gave it up for you. He gave it up for you. He says, I will give it up to save you. The most shocking thing, you know, about Lord, Lord, is the fact that God says, away from me, depart from me. That means that the greatest punishment on earth that you could ever experience is to lose Jesus, to lose God. On the cross, Jesus suffered the ultimate, total wrath of God, separated from God completely. He lost God. The greatest punishment one could ever experience. And so what he's saying here, the sum of the Sermon on the Mount, is do whatever it takes to get me. Center your entire life around me and the fact that you are accepted by me and loved by me. Otherwise, you're going to be tired and you're going to be chasing rainbows for the rest of your life. You're never going to find what you're looking for. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you see that Jesus laid down his life for you, you realize you are filled with glory. That's your significance. That's your value. That's your love. That's the worth that you've been looking for. 
And then you realize you've been very, very busy without the Father. Let it go and gain the Father. Receive the Father. Realize that you've been addicted to good works all your life. That's the reason why you're so angry and why you're so frustrated, why you're comparing yourself with other people all the time. Rest in Christ. Will you do that this week? Rest in Christ. Every sermon sounds like Easter, doesn't it? Rest in Christ. Let's pray.